Today's episode of the Dad Tired Podcast is brought to you by Haya Health. I know some of you dads listening may not be giving too much thought about the vitamins that your kids are taking, or maybe you just leave it up to your wife to make those decisions, but I want to challenge you to give this some thought. Haya Health was actually started by two dads who realized the vitamins they were giving their kids were essentially sugar-filled candy in disguise, so they decided to do something about it. Did you know that 93% of kids don't eat enough fruits and vegetables? And we all know that what kids eat instead are chicken fingers, mac and cheese, processed foods, ice cream, and more. And the vitamins that are supposed to fill in those nutritional gaps are based on out-of-date nutritional guidelines from the 1980s. Haya fills in the most common gaps in modern children's diets to provide the full-body nourishment our kids need with a yummy taste they love. My kids absolutely love these vitamins. They're made from 12 farm-fresh fruits and vegetables and supercharged with 15 essential vitamins and minerals known to help support a healthy immune system, energy levels, brain function, mood, teeth, bones, and more. Most children's vitamins are filled with 5 grams of sugar and can cause a variety of health issues. Haya is made with zero sugar and zero gummy junk, yet it tastes great and is perfect for picky eaters. It's non-GMO, vegan, dairy-free, allergy-free, gelatin-free, nut-free, and everything else you can imagine. It's manufactured here in the United States with globally sourced ingredients, each selected for optimal bioavailability and absorption. We've worked out an exclusive offer with Haya for their best-selling children's vitamin. Dad Tired listeners receive 50% off your first order. To claim this deal, you must go to HayaHealth.com forward slash Dad Tired or enter the code DADTIRED at checkout. That's H-I-Y-A-H-E-A-L-T-H dot com slash DADTIRED, HayaHealth.com slash DADTIRED, and get your kids the full body nourishment they need to grow into healthy adults. Again, go to HayaHealth.com forward slash DADTIRED, or enter the promo code DADTIRED at checkout. Randy, so excited to be hanging out with you today, man. When I saw your new book, I thought I have to have you on the show to be talking about this stuff. I could go on and on about an introduction here and why I'm so excited, but I think there are two kind of big problems that we face as Americans or people in the West trying to lead our family well. The first one is we don't always spend as much time in the scripture and in the word as we ought to. And as a result, I think sometimes we make up who we want God to be in our head. I always say when we don't learn who God is in the Bible, then we make him up in our heads and he, he starts to sound and look and talk and act a lot like we do, which uh, is essentially idolatry. And the second part is when we do read the scripture, whether we know it or not, we often come to those scriptures with a lens through an Americanized, Westernized lens. And we are reading the scriptures in the way that they were never intended to be read. And so when I saw your book, I'm like, oh man. This is a really big deal for us guys who want to be spiritual leaders. But anyway, I've already rambled too much. Tell us who you are, <laughs> what you're up to these days, why you wrote the book, all that good stuff. All right. Well, Jared, thanks for having me. My name is Randy Richards. I'm married to Stacia. We have been married 42 years, which is amazing. Wow. I would have left me a long time ago. <laughs> and um, I have two wonderful sons who are both married and both of them have given me a grandson. Wow. So as you mentioned I can think about my sons when I think about the people that we are talking to. Yeah. And when I talk about why I wrote the book, a couple of things happened that made me think, hmm. So I had done, well, I was a missionary serving in on an island between Borneo and New Guinea, kind of mm -hmm. the crossroads of the world. I was up in the bush somewhere and preaching in a, a village. And afterwards, we'll sit around to have lunch. They're out there cooking and that sort of thing. And so the, you know, the 
elders of the church will will be there talking with me. And they'll usually have some kind of question. Last I'm used to Bible questions. And and so they said, uh, so uh, Pendetta, they call me Pendetta. Pendetta, we have a question. We need your wisdom. So I thought, okay, I can do that. I was about 34 years old at the time. (laughs) And they said, there's this couple that they committed a grievous sin in their home village. I mean, so terrible. They had to flee the village. They came to our village. They've been here about 10 years. They've been living wonderful, godly lives, and they would like to join our church. We just don't know if we can because it was so serious. And I said, well, what was it? And they said, oh, you know, we don't want to say. But, and I, you know, I hemmed around a little bit and I realized, well, I can't answer the question if I don't know what they had done. So I said, well, you know, I said that I can't, I, you know, I have to know. So they didn't want to air dirty village laundry, you know, but they finally said, well, what they did was they married on the run, meaning what we call eloping. They got married without their parents' permission. And I, I looked at them and I said, well, what sin was that? <laughs> and they looked at me just appalled. <laughs> yeah, like you got to get out of here immediately. <laughs> and they said, uh, have you never read Paul? Mm. And I thought, wow, I have a PhD in Paul. <laughs> so, <laughs> and I thought, I thought I'd read them. And I said, I don't understand. They said, well, Paul says... Uh, children obey your parents. And they said, we know that, you know, people don't always obey their parents, but one of the most important decisions you'll ever make in your life, surely you would want to obey scripture. And I sat there and I thought, I had in my mind, given that verse an expiration date, Mm. you know, that that verse applied till you were 18. It never occurred to me when Paul wrote to the Ephesians, he wasn't writing to children when Mm. he said, children, obey your parents. Interesting. And I just suddenly realized, wow, I wonder if I've ever read Paul. Mm. And so that started my journey of just thinking, maybe I have put a filter in front of my eyes so that when I read something, I read it through my own culture's lenses. Because as a individual, you know, you pick your own spouse. (laughs) Well, I was going to say, I actually completely agree with them. Now that I'm hearing the story, I'm like, I think it would be the greatest sin of all time for my kids to not to <laughs> consult me on who they're going to marry. Right? I actually like that. Jared, uh, I'm often asked, by the way, somebody says, how do you know if you're an individualist or a collectivist, which is the opposite of an individualist? And I ask them, would you consider letting your parents pick your spouse? And if they say no, then you're an individualist. Yeah, which is... Man, I used this analogy on, a, on an interview recently, but I said there we're swimming in an ocean that we don't even realize we're swimming in. And I think this is one of them. Like we we're, mm-hmm. we're all kind of swimming in a in an ocean of so many norms and assumptions and things that we just it's impossible to look at it objectively because we're just in the thick of it. We don't even know that we're in these waters. Right. It's scarcely a fish who notices water. Exactly. So I guess to build some context here, what are some prime examples that you have seen where you, as somebody who studied the scriptures, obviously you live here and you're, you're, you're teaching here. What are some just, I'm sure we can go on all kinds, but what are some that just stick out to you when you're like, well, when you read that, it's often misinterpreted because you're reading that through a Western lens. Well, let me tell another story. I yeah. was in that same part of the world. And I had given an exam because I'm a teacher, you know, and, mm-hmm. and I'm handing back exams and the front page was multiple choice. And I handed an exam to one of the students. And as I handed it, I noticed that she had not answered one of the questions. And I said, well, you didn't answer question two or whatever it was. She said, well, I didn't know the answer. And I said, well, you should have guessed. 
you know, it's multiple choice. And she looked at me rather appalled. And she said, but what if I guessed right? It would imply that I knew the answer when I didn't. And that would be lying. Wow. Oh, yeah, that's, I caught myself before I argued her to a lower standard. I realized at that moment, my American sense, my American virtue of pragmatism had won out over my Christian virtue of honesty. Wow. Yeah. My students hate that story today. <laughs> yeah, seriously. <laughs> seriously. What are some passages that you can think of that are real popular in the Christian faith, whether it's a story or specific verses okay. that, are, that are like, you know, that, you, man, we really look at that through a Western lens. Paul says, uh, women should dress modestly. In our American culture, if you use the word woman and the word modest in the same sentence, by definition, you mean sexually modest. Hmm. So we're telling women to keep their shirts on, which, by the way, is a good idea. So, but Paul actually wasn't talking about sexually modest. He was talking about economically modest. He says not with gold and pearls and expensive jewelry. He was saying in their world, they had a way of dressing that says, I have more money than you. Hmm. And that intimidated and made other members, poor members of the congregation feel unwelcome. And by the way, the husband and wife were in that together. The way you showed your family's wealth was by draping your wife in gold Hmm. and uh, jewelry. So it was a way for a family to say, I have more money than the rest of you. Well, When we read that verse, we don't think that. I suspect today there are ways that a family at church could indicate, I have more money than you. And Paul would say, that's not dressing modestly. Hmm. So it is not dressing appropriately. In fact, I'm going to yank your chain a little bit, Jared. You can never get away with translating it this way in English. But the word is actually the word shame. Women should dress with shame. Now, we have screwed that word up so badly in our culture. But what shame, what it actually meant was, you know the difference between right and wrong. You know the proper way to act. Otherwise, you would be shameless. So, and you don't want to be shameless. You want to have shame. You want to know the right way to act in a situation. Our culture has messed it up so much, shameful and shameless in our culture mean the same thing. Well, how can Mm. being full of something and not having it mean the same thing? So we just completely messed it up. So when the early church fathers talked about spreading the blood of the lamb on the doorpost during the Exodus, they said the blood on the lamb was for the shame of the death angel, meaning not to embarrass the death angel, but it meant it would tell the death angel the proper way to act in that situation. It was a boundary. And of course, the boundary was don't enter that house Mm. because that's one of his chosen people. In a story of the great Christian early church father, Polycarp, who's martyred at age 86, um, one of the people trying to talk him out of it says, have show shame for your age, meaning show that you know the proper way to act for an 86-year-old. Mm. Well, in our culture, we've completely screwed that up. So Paul is actually complimenting women when he said that. He's saying women in the church should know the proper way to act in this matter. Now, maybe not an individual one, but the women as a whole would know the proper way to uh, show wealth or not show wealth in the way that the family appears. It's a compliment. So it's not that, hey, men, you know the right way because we often are 
oblivious to that sort of stuff. But he's saying that you can trust women to know this. And as a married guy, how many times has our wife indicated the proper way to act in a situation and that we are being a knucklehead? Yeah, yeah, daily. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> probably 10 times today already this morning. You know, some of this is, it's really fun because you're, you're like, man, okay, I didn't even realize the cultural context here. I didn't realize that there was different meanings of the word. And when you, whenever you study the scriptures in this way and you discover some of that, it's really fun. But some of it is a little bit intimidating because you're like, well, I just want to be a faithful man of God who yeah. gets up in the morning and reads the Bible. And now I'm like, well, shoot, am I reading the whole thing wrong? Like, <laughs> what, what, how do you I was it? led to the Lord as a 12 year old. I didn't know squat. I'm old. So <laughs> I was led to the Lord out of a King James Bible where I didn't understand half of what it was yeah. saying. I mean, at the time, it was good news for 16th century man. But by the time I got around to it, I didn't know what a lot of those words mean. And yet the spirit still acted through that scripture. So he can always reach out and touch us. So what we're talking about is not, are you able to read the Bible? But hey, can I read it better in this situation or that situation? Is my culture clouding me from seeing something that I probably should have seen? Something that the biblical writer tried to make obvious and we missed it. Mm. Let me give an example. The story of Joseph with the coat of many colors, you know, the great uh, patriarch. In the first story, the first time he's introduced, he's tattletaling on his brothers. So it's supposed to kind of tip us off. Hmm, there's something going on here. Then what is obvious to them, but not to us, I'll tell my students, you know, Joseph was the oldest son and they'll say, well, no, no, he wasn't. I'll say, well, yes, he was the oldest son of the second wife. All the other brothers are from the first wife. And I'll go, oh, but you know, in America, it doesn't matter, blended families, you know. And I say, but who's going to inherit? Which wife is the one who inherits? Well, Jacob indicated which wife will inherit because Joseph gets the coat. It, that's not like he gets the nicest Christmas present. He's the one who stays with Jacob in the home office while the son, the other sons are out in the field working. He's younger than the rest of them, but he's sent out to tell them what to do. So all of this was supposed to be obvious to us. We were supposed to immediately recognize, oh, this is an issue about inheritance. So if Jacob or Joseph inherits, what happens to the other brothers? Well, it's really the choice of Joseph. He can take care of them like any brother should, or he can cut them out and just leave them homeless. Not only those brothers, but the brothers' wives and the brothers' children. So is Joseph going to take care of them or not? And the story tells us, he tells them, you know, I had a dream. And in that dream, all of you bow down to me. Ooh, that indicates to the other brothers how things are going to stack up. First time I read that to some friends in the Middle East, One of them stood up in the middle of it and waved his arms around, raised his voice. And he said, where is Jacob? And I thought, what does Jacob have to do with this? He's, Mm. you know, he's three chapters back. Mm. So obviously I look confused. And he said, of course, brothers disagree. It's the father's job to make sure the family stays together. All of them read that story as the story of Jacob. And how Jacob restores unity to the family. What I did, Jared, I turned it, I turned the Joseph story into the American success story. You know, the boy grows up on the farm, has to leave the farm for some reason, goes out, faces adversity, 
overcomes and makes it big. I mean, that's the American success story. Uh, so in my mind, the story of Joseph is over when he's made second in Egypt. Yeah. And then I don't notice, first off, that's halfway through the story. You know, all I have is this giant epilogue of, you know, brothers coming and going and gold hidden in sacks and all when it's really the story of the restoration of the family. And at the end, Joseph takes care of his brothers as he should have at the beginning. Yeah. So much to unpack there. (laughs) (laughs) I've got a bunch of questions. Let's start here. Let's just zoom in on that particular story because that story really highlights the value that the scriptures place on family mm-hmm. versus just individual, like there's there's a bigger story going on. So let's just set aside for a second misinterpretation of all these passages and words and things and just kind of focus on how important are when you view the scriptures and you study them through as much as you can, the, the, the appropriate cultural context, how much of it is we're talking about a family or the family versus we're talking about an individual. In some ways, I would say it's never about the individual. It's Mm. always about the family. You know, church is described as the family. Yeah. The brothers and sisters, which, you know, I grew up in the Southern U.S., so we're always called Brother Andy, you know, Brother (laughs) Jared. And it, you know, kind of just becomes church speak. But they meant it very seriously. This, you have become part of a new family. You've been adopted into the family of God. So you have family responsibilities. It's always family. And by the way, what our culture does for us is it causes us to not notice things that we should have just noticed in the story. They stuck it right out there in front and I just zoomed right by it and didn't notice it when I was supposed to pick up. And that causes me to to misread a little bit because I didn't notice what they wanted me to notice. So then trying to make sense of what's the problem here, I read into it what I think, well, hmm, it must be a problem of this or it must be a problem of that. What would you say as somebody who's studying the scriptures, what would you say if you could sum up like why individualism is so dangerous. And especially thinking through us as, as dads who are trying to raise a family, set a legacy for generations to generation, for generations to come. Why is reading the scriptures through an individual lens so dangerous? Well, I would say I want to be careful not to project this idea that the West is bad and the East is good. Yeah. None of that nonsense. I think there needs to be a book misreading scripture through Eastern eyes but I can't write it. So Western culture and Eastern culture are like two wings of an airplane. You know, there's no use arguing which one is more important. And individualism and collectivism are just the way we view the world. I wouldn't argue that one is better than the other. The problem is when my side, whatever it is, causes me to ignore the other side. Mm. So my collectivist friends struggle with seeing any individual responsibility for anything. And I'll say, come on now, you screwed this up. You know, and they'll say, oh, well, you know, my family and this. And they, no, 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 let's come back. It's mm-hmm. you. And the Bible does have a individualist push in it. We just think, obviously, my collectivist friends struggle with that while we don't see the collective side of it. So both of us are reading parts of scripture really well and parts of it we're not reading quite so well. So in some ways, if we talk about what's the solution, we need the table of the family of God to be really big and we need to make sure everybody is seated at the table, brothers and sisters in Christ from all over the world and let everybody speak toward what these passages mean. 
Yeah, it's really interesting because you said you, we kind of, it's such church speak to be, hey, brother, how you doing, brother, and all this stuff. But we get weird when we talk about like the family being an actual, fa- like the, the Christians are the church or your local church being family. I don't know if we know how to do that well. Well, uh, <laughs> I'll tell a story. When I got up one morning in Indonesia, our houses, they don't lock the doors or really anything like that. Because, I mean, if somebody stole my coffee table, anyone who saw it out there in the bush would say, what are you doing with Pastor Randy's coffee table? You know, So I got up one morning and all of our living room furniture was gone. So I walked into the kitchen where my wife was working away. And I said, our, our living room furniture is gone. She said, yeah, I noticed that. And uh, I said, where might our furniture have gone? She said, I don't know. It was gone when I got up this morning. So I came back from teaching class at lunchtime. It was still gone. And then that afternoon, a pickup truck pulls up. There's all of our furniture. They start unloading it. They put it back in the living room and they're just going to leave. And uh, I probably should have just waved goodbye, but I'm an American, you know? So I kind of chased back after him. I said, where has my furniture been? <laughs> and they said, well, it was up the mountain at this wedding. They said, we needed some more furniture. And because you're a, a believer, we knew you wouldn't mind loaning it to us. Mm. So we just borrowed it. Well, it was a compliment to me. Mm. And I fortunately didn't screw it up. It reminded me, I was reminded of it years later, Jared, when I was visiting my parents, my sister was there as well. I'm on a different time zone. So I got up earlier than them. My folks didn't have coffee. And I thought this is a crime against (laughs) humanity. I need some coffee. I had flown in. My sister had driven in. So I found her car keys on the counter. I went out, borrowed her car, went down, got coffee, came back. I was back with the coffee before she got up. I knew it was okay because she's my sister. She wouldn't mind me borrowing my car Yeah, or borrowing her car. Right. It was the same thing. Yeah. That part, when I hear that story, a part of it is like, man, I want that. I want that in our local church and our community. Like, I think I've experienced that. I've been in church since I was a young kid. I think I've experienced that in one season of my life with a walking through life with a group of people where that felt natural and real. And like, you could do that kind of stuff, but I'm talking about one season of my life out of the whole time I've been following Jesus and been part of the Christian community. Why do you think it's so hard for us as Christians? And again, I, I, I appreciate what you said about, you know, not, let's not bash the West here. And, but why do you think it's so hard for us as a church? We talk about family so often, and yet very, very few people have kinds of Christian relationships where they can take the furniture out of your living room for their par- birthday party <laughs> and bring well, it Well, I would say it's because that stuff belongs to me. My wife drugged me into watching Downton Abbey for a while. It's kind of interesting. Here, I'm going to admit it in front of God and everybody. I actually kind of ended up enjoying the show. (laughs) But it was interesting that furniture in the house that the family owned, they didn't really think of as owning it. You know, they were the caretakers of the Abbey and the caretakers of the furniture. So they had a little more collective view of that. When I think of that car as mine versus it belongs to my family, maybe even my Christian family, it's a little easier. But Jared, you're right. This is an area of growth for all of us. But having said that, there are certain things that we in the West as Christians do really well. We're really good at generosity. We are really good at forgiveness there's just certain things that we do really well. We just have growth areas in other places. Do you mean you've seen other regions not be as good at forgiveness or it's been harder for them? 
I remember when one of my Japanese pastor's friends said to me one time, so is it true that American Christians aren't like mad over Pearl Harbor? I said, no, they're really not. He said, that is so amazing. Hmm. He said, you've just completely forgiven Japan for that. I said, yeah, I think they have. He said, that's amazing. You should not assume that's the other way. Hmm. And it was very sobering for me. I think we are pretty quick with forgiveness. I remember being in Beirut and seeing some graffiti spray painted on the wall. I asked my friend, what does that say? He said, it says, never forget, never forgive. I said, what's that about? He said, that's about the Beirut Civil War. Well, that was, you know, 60 years ago or whatever. That wasn't spray painted by 80-year-old people. They still felt like the blood that was spilt was their blood. And they have not, many of them have not forgiven. And my Christian friends there say, it's really hard. Why do you think that is? Do you think that, uh, is it because a lot of cultures place like a deeper sense of our value on honor? Is it like there's kind of an honor you've broken trust or honor? You haven't acted honorably? I think that is a important part of it. You know, when they talk about in the Bible about the Exodus and stuff, they'll say when God led us out of Egypt and when God parted the sea for us. Well, I wasn't there and you weren't there. In fact, the people that the New Testament was talking to, they weren't there either, but they write the story as if they were there. And in many ways, they feel like they were there. So my Beirut friends feel like it was their blood that was spilt in that civil war. And for us, it's old history. Hey guys, hope you're enjoying this interview so far. I just want to take a quick minute to pause and tell you about a really cool resource I just recently discovered I think you're going to love and it's going to be helpful for your family. It's called Loam. It's a calendar and a planning tool that you can use to get the whole family involved to bring a little bit of order to probably the chaos that you're feeling in your family. I know I feel this with all the different schedules. I have four kids, a wife, a marriage work, all this kind of stuff. And we're trying to figure out how do we put all this stuff together where we can work together as a family. And sometimes that can get really hard. And so Loam, what they did is they created a calendar that allows you to sit down with your kids. It's customizable. They're visual routine trackers. So you can put things like uh, chore charts, bedtime charts, uh, when your kids should brush your teeth, when lights should be out, all that kind of stuff. It's all in here. They even have image view, which is really cool. So for us, we have young ones like three-year-old and one-year-olds. Obviously, they can't read yet, but you can use image view. And so it pulls up the calendar and they can just see visuals like, oh, it's dinner time or it's time to brush my teeth or whatever. So really cool way to incorporate the whole family, even those who can't read. If you get stuck and you're like, I don't know what we should put in our calendar as a whole family. I just always put work or whatever in there but you want to get the whole family involved. They actually have inspirational ideas for shared time together. They'll, they'll have ideas for meals, activities, fun conversations, all kinds of stuff that you can import directly into the calendar really, really easily. And lastly, they work with all the other calendars. They're continuing to update to get more and more calendars. But if you got like a Gmail calendar you want to, or a Google calendar you want to throw in there, no problem. It will easily sync to that. They have a really cool offer. This was created by Dad Tired listeners Guys who love Jesus, love their family, and are trying to create more intentional time with their family. They created a special offer just for you, the Dad Tired listeners. If you go to withloam.com forward slash Dad Tired, again, that's withloam, L-O-M-E dot com forward slash Dad Tired. They're going to give you code to try your first month for free. You use the code Dad Tired at checkout, all one word, 
dad tired at checkout, you'll get your first month free. Again, that's with loam.com forward slash dad tired. Use the promo code dad tired at checkout, all one word, and you'll get your first month free. Yeah. I'm wondering like, how do you teach that in kids where they, cause I think there's something beautiful about that. Like you're part of something bigger. It's not life doesn't just revolve around. I mean, I think that's, we need that as adults, but also it's such a beautiful principle. You know, I, I see it a lot with my mother-in-law is middle Eastern. She's from Iran actually. Ah. And, um, she is like fiercely dedicated to providing a life for my kids that is like, I, she almost like surpasses me and her passion for wanting to leave a legacy for them. It's remarkable. And I just, I think it's such part of her culture. That's like, there's no greater honor for me than to pass on like family legacy. And it's wow, wonderful. Yeah. And we live in such just a, I mean, I, I know I'm get prone to really just individualism and we're again, it's the ocean that we're all kind of swimming in. So Jared, I would say we need to do what your mother-in-law is doing. We teach children. I don't know if they still do anymore, but when I was growing up, we had a song, father Abraham had many sons. Yeah. I am one of them. And so are you this idea that their story is my story and is my family history. So when we teach our children that those stories in the Old Testament are the stories of our heritage, those are our people who are led out of Egypt and our people, because we've been grafted, as Paul would say, grafted into the tree. So that fierceness that she has of making sure your kids know they belong to something bigger, I think we need to make sure we teach it to our kids that all of those stories are not just once upon a time stories. They're stories of our ancestors. Yeah, I love that. I love that picture. I'm jumping all over the place here because my, mind, my, my mind's racing. But I want to jump back to that, the furniture analogy. So, you know, they, them coming over. I think that's such a beautiful story. Do you know anyone like that? Like in, in your Christian faith, like around you that you could, it's just so rare. I'm coming back I, to like, is this, a, is this a realistic thing? Yeah, tell me. Um, I have some old friends, guy friends, the kind that you're making now, fast forward 30 years to my age, though, mm. if you've nurtured those relationships, they will be those people. If they called you and they said, man, I'm, I'm in trouble. First off, you wouldn't ask what they did wrong. You would just hop in your car, yeah. drive four hours like I did to be with that guy in the midst of his trouble, because that's what you would do. Mm. Now, the problem is you're your audience is thinking, man, I want that. Well, you should, but it, you've got to build it. It doesn't start with, it doesn't reach that level with 30 year olds. It starts at that level. And as you nurture it and keep showing that we belong to each other, we're part of a family of faith and invest in each other, it will build. And then their kids will see it building. You can't help but say, well, just call him Uncle Charlie, even though he's not a biological uncle, but he is being part of your family. And so you can help them learn to be part of the family of faith, I think, in that way. Yeah. And I've got a couple of close friends, as you talked about that, who I feel the same way. You know, if I called right now, they would be, if I, I've got close friends who I'm like, if I called, they live in different states. And if I said, hey, I need help moving the couch, you know, they'd, <laughs> they'd, they'd find a way to help me. But I just was thinking, you know, for our, for the guys, for you guys that are listening, what would it look like to create a lifestyle, a family culture where you are the kind of family that's really trying to live this out in your local church and local context? 
where you are the family that says, listen, if you need furniture for your party, for your wedding, my house is open. You come. Like It seems radical, but everything that Jesus talked about was really radical. The way that Jesus set the standards for family within the church was radical and radical generosity. So I would encourage any listener to it's actually the true definition of hospitality. We've turned hospitality into inviting over your friends. Well, that's called being a friend. Mm. Hospitality is the processing of strangers so that when it's done, they're no longer a stranger. Now, it's naive to think that means all strangers turn into friends. No, there's some people when you get to know them a little better, you think, oh, I need this person not in my life. Yeah. You know, they're, they're going to stay a stranger. <laughs> yeah. And just stay a distance. But they are processed. And so as you build this network of friends, you learn these friends, you know, they're, they're friends. But if I lean on them too much, it, that relationship will break. But there's some others that I keep investing in, and that relationship gets stronger and stronger. The ancients would refer to it in a couple of ways. One was as a bridge. You're constantly going back and forth across that bridge and building it stronger and stronger. So it takes years to build the kind of bridge where you could come home and find out that they've, they, you know, they borrowed your truck and they didn't even ask. Hmm. And you would say, well, they, they needed my truck. Yeah. I hope that for all the guys listening, that you are part of becoming that for somebody that you, you, you invest the time. You know what? I, I heard somebody say this a long time ago, but they said one of the most radical things we can do, especially for us in a younger generation who like to do all kinds of different things, we're, we're moving on to the next fad pretty quickly. One of the most radical things we can do is to live in one place for like 30 years and just serve the people there for like 30, you know, just be patient, love on people, be faithful, be consistent. Like this, you want to change the world for Christ like that in our generation, that might be the most radical thing you can do. Do you have some practical tips for us guys that want to be in God's word more? We want to be men who lead our children to be lovers of God's word and to study God's word. What are some ways that we can approach the scriptures and try to read them as faithfully and accurately as we can? Well, I think first we need to read them. We will quickly start glazing over things. Many of your listeners will know the story where Abraham is visited by these strangers who end up being angel and tell him that Sarah's going to have a, a baby. But it's interesting when he says, please stay for dinner. It says in the text, he told Sarah, grab a whatever it was, a quarter, whatever the measurement was, a fine wheat and make bread and prepare a meal for our guests. And then I went on reading it and I was in the Middle East at the time. They start nodding their head. And so I okay, okay, what's going on? He said, you notice she didn't bring bread. Hmm. And I said, that's what I said. Exactly, Jared. <laughs> I said, huh? So I went back and looked. I said, well, it must not have been important. They said, oh, come on. And I realized, well, yeah, that's why they told us the story was to tell the story that, and they point out Sarah is not, by the way, a role model of, of I mean, she caused this trouble. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and she's not being obedient in that situation. And I thought, huh. And I just had just never noticed it. I just glazed right past it, just like I had glazed past the children verse and just automatically made that expire at 18. And I've glazed past other passages where he made it very plain and I just kept ignoring it. Now, sometimes we need help seeing it. That's where a good study Bible will help. When Paul says, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? A good study Bible will point out those yous are all plural, that all of you 
and your bodies are a temple for the Holy Spirit. So it's not like you're a temple and I'm a temple and everybody. So there's not 200,000 temples of the Holy Spirit listening right now. There's one temple. All of us together form a temple of the Holy Spirit, which is, by the way, why we need to gather together. We Okay, hold on. That's like, oh. <laughs> that's <laughs> been in the Christian world a long time. Never heard anybody ever describe it like that. I think a lot of guys are going to hear because we hear usually in the context of purity, you know, do the right thing because your body is a temple of the Lord. What you're saying is completely different than what pretty much I would say most of us have been taught. Well, the problem is we're reading that. We're not reading Peter, who uses the same illustration, but he says, all of you are living stones being built up into a house of the Lord. It's the same point. Uh, Jude will do the same thing. So other writers are doing it. Paul was doing this. His point was that we as a group form, as the people of God, we form the temple of the Holy Spirit, which also means, Jared, we hear the Spirit differently in community. We hear them in a fuller way than we'll hear it as an individual. So when somebody says, you know, I can worship God just as well in the golf course. No, it requires the community to be the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. Example, we glaze right past where Jesus says, where two or three of you are gathered together, there I'm in your midst. Well, in America, he's there in our midst if it's just me. My mind is like blown right now. I'm trying. I'm just trying to. I'm trying. I'm like, okay, hold on. Sorry about that. I'm trying to go back through. Like, how many messages have I given that have been completely wrong? <laughs> well, better. You can make them better. Because you know, we God cares about individual purity, absolutely. But that wasn't the main point Paul was making in that verse. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So going back to the question, I diverted us. When we read the scriptures, you mentioned a study Bible. Do you have a study Bible that you recommend to guys? Or I, um, well, not the per- people with purple hair study Bible. <laughs> devotional Bibles are kind of fun, but they're just they're devotional and they tend to reflect the culture that that Bible is yeah. is focusing on. Yeah. So if it's a a youth devotional Bible, they'll call it a youth study Bible. It's a youth devotional Bible. It's going to try to point out things related to youth, but rather an actual study Bible, like the NIV study Bible or the ESV study Bible. I'm not plugging those particular translations, although they're both fine, but both of those study Bibles were made by good, serious Bible-believing scholars who are trying to tell you the stuff in the notes that will help you read the text better. You know, some people, as you said that, I've, I've heard a lot of uh, kind of snooty arguments about translations. And so you brought up translations. People, are, people can get real finicky about these. Even churches have split over uh, what translation we're going to read. What do, you, what, what do you, I guess for somebody who's listening who doesn't, they've never even gone down that road. They're thinking like, I'm just trying to like love my wife and my kids and be yeah. the best. You know, right. Be like, I guess what's the goal in like trying to find a good translation? What's the difference between all of them? Do we need to focus on that or is it just? No, I don't, you know, they're all good and they're all bad. You know, I, um, I teach Greek and mm. as a seminary prof. So I tell my students reading the Bible and translations, like kissing your wife through saran wrap, you know, <laughs> it's good, but you know, it's, it can be better. So it's always better to read the original, but that's not an option for most people. Yeah. So what I would say is I'm go stuck to- on my man. I'm so visual. I'm just stuck <laughs> on the analogy, <laughs> but okay. Sorry I'm coming back. No. Okay. So go to some, app like Bible Gateway and call up three or four. So when you're reading a passage, read it through three or four 
translations. And eventually you'll settle down to two or three, maybe just two that you really like and read both of those and realize that they're, it's not like one is a better translation than the other. The right reading is probably somewhere in the middle between the two. And so you're trying to read it. I do Bible translation. So it's a challenge. Do you translate what it says or do you translate what it means? Because it's not always the same thing. I was working with a group of American pastors in, uh, actually is in Indonesia, and I was translating for them. And the American pastor said to ask the Indonesian, ask him if he can go with me today. I said, can you go with them today? And the Indonesian said, yes. So I translated maybe because <laughs> there's a million reasons why I wouldn't be able to. And then he said, well, ask him if you can go with me tomorrow. And then he should said, maybe. And I said, no, because that's what maybe means there. So do you translate what they say or do you translate what it means? It's not like it's a hopeless mess, nothing like that. Bible translators work hard. They take their tasks very seriously. But the more literal it is, the more it moves away from the kind of the point that it's trying to make. And the more it moves toward the point the further it gets from literal. So you, you just read a couple and the right space is in the middle. But if you pick the worst translation out there, God will still work in your life in powerful ways. Yeah. The spirit of God is he's at work and he's moving. This is a new world for me. I don't know much about the, the translation world, but has it from the time that we originally translated the Bible into English until now, have things changed? Have, have thoughts changed about how to translate it? Has What's the well, evolvement um, been of translation well, the bigger challenge is language changes as my college students are always telling me mm. they'll say dr richards that word doesn't mean that anymore and so <laughs> yeah. you know there was a time when loot that you took in war was called booty that's right so i made the mistake of saying alexander the great hauled away a lot of that stuff from us <laughs> and and the whole class made great fun of me so one of the challenges with translations is language changes in the 16th century, you would say, let not those who lend toward leasing. And that was plain everyday speak to mean avoid people who lie. Well, you know, it's better today to say avoid people who lie. Yeah. So language changes. And then there's always the debate between do you try to say it more literally what's there or do you try to say more what it means? And some of your listeners are bilingual. You know, they speak English and Spanish, both or something. Anyone who's bilingual understands yeah. that there's a difference between what it says and what it means. I grew up monolingual. And so, you know, words just mean what they mean. And they seem to be logical. They just It's logical. So we take a pill and that just seems like what else would you do? But most people in the world drink a pill. And if you think about it, that's. Eh, that's probably actually more accurate, but it sounds stupid to us. <laughs> but as you learn another language, you realize, well, you know, there's, they don't quite always connect those things the same way that we do. But again, having said all that, my problem is never a verse where the meaning is not quite clear. My problem is a verse where the meaning is very clear, like stop lying to one another. Those are the verses that give me trouble because, <laughs> you know, I struggle with, you know, always trying to tell the truth. If all you dealt with were the verses that were very plain the whole rest of your life and just worked on those, you would have a lifetime of great work to do. Wow. Let's just end there because that's a real <laughs> powerful statement. Randy, this was so fun. I really, really appreciated this conversation. I, I got a couple more thoughts. Okay. Let me just throw out one more. To, it, it, we should end there because you ended with such a powerful one. But I, I feel like I was speaking one time traveling. I can't remember where it was. Somewhere international. 
and they had translate like heart wasn't the most important organ. So it wasn't when our scripture said heart, they didn't have heart. It was like liver or something. Have you heard that? Yeah. It's actually tends to be in the kidney Kidneys, yeah, region. Kidneys. Yeah. 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 Because, because that was the most important word. So many fascinating things. This is a really fascinating conversation. Anyway, w- encourage all the guys to go pick up a good study Bible. But most importantly, I love what you said. Just be in God's word. If all you did was try to be obedient to the ones that are really clear, they don't need a bunch of interpretations or cultural you know, analysis. Uh, you'd still spend the rest of your life just you know, trying to figure that stuff. And they'd be a better father and mm. a better husband if they did that. And if they work really hard at it, then if the Lord blesses them, they'll get a chance to be a wonderful grandfather as well. That's a crown. That's the goal, man. That's the goal. <laughs> we'll have everyone go pick up your copy of your new book, Misreading Scripture with Western Eyes. You also have another one. Tell us about the other one. Misreading Scripture with Individualist Eyes. Start with the Western Eyes book first. Okay. And if you feel like I, I didn't do you enough harm, then pick up the next one. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Thank you, Randy. This has been so much fun. I've really enjoyed getting to meet you and have this conversation with you. God bless you. Thanks for inviting me. Hey guys, hope you enjoyed today's episode. As a reminder, we do have a community of men who are encouraging each other every day to be the men that God's called them to be. We'd love to have you come be part of that. You can go to connect.dadtired.com and be part of that community. Again, go to connect.dadtired.com to jump in.